Hello from Education International in Brussels. This is Ed Voices, a podcast of global education news and advocacy. EI has more than 400 teacher and educator unions and professional associations in 173 countries, representing 32 million members. Here's your host. Here we are at the Education International podcast on Education at a Glance, which is an OECD publication. I'm Martin Henry, the research coordinator, and I'll be talking to John Bangs, who is the senior consultant to the general secretary on all matters OECD. So, John, I'd like to start with the question, what does the Education at a Glance do? What does it mean and to whom is it relevant? Well, Education at a Glance is OECD's flagship publication, uh, along with its individual research reports, PISA and TALIS. But this is different. What we call the EAG comes out every year. It's an annual publication and it draws on all the data that the OECD can get to itself over the last year, draws it all together, but it also pulls on uh, European Union data as well and other sources. And it's not a policy publication, it presents a, a snapshot over from the last year of where education is on all the key indicators such as spending, take up by students, uh, issues around who is most advantaged and disadvantaged, uh, gender issues, that full range. The one thing the education at a glance is not is education at a glance. <laughs> it's, uh, it's about 500 pages long and uh, you have to have a certain technique to read it. But if you know what you're looking for, including the graphs, it's actually quite accessible. But for every geek that wants to know about their education system and how it compares with other education systems in the OECD, this is an essential publication. Well, that leads me smoothly on to my next question, because we've had an, a request from our Slovenian affiliate about whether you have a country analysis, as there is with PISA. Well, as a country analysis in terms of data, and in fact all the graphs do that. Uh, and some of, the, uh, some of the analyses are quite shocking. Uh, um, what I get from education at a glance, actually, is that the averages that they do, for instance, what is the average spend on student, for example, is fairly meaningless, since the range is often massive, even inside OECD countries. Uh, and you can get all sorts of odd things as well, how much is contributing, how much are individual countries contributing to uh, international development, for example, uh, the amount of spend on individual students, how much teachers are paid. The range is often very, very big. So you can, what you really need to do is actually look at the average and say, well, that's important. It's always a good benchmark for a country that's below that average. But if you really need that data for policy uh, creation at national level, you need to have a look at what your country is doing. Okay. Now, <coughs> we have had a very useful summary written by your good self, which will be up on the website today for those who would like to access it. 
And I'm going to take you through some questions that relate to the summary. Sure. So I'm going to start with chapter A, which is about the output of educational institutions and the impact of learning. And the question really is about geopolitics, because there are a number of points that you make about where the school is, about student socioeconomic status, which boys, which girls and which parents comes up as, as a major issue. Would you like to just take us through some of the findings and reflections that you have on that? Sure. I'll tell you what I was really taken aback by, actually reading Education at a Glance this year, was how much the OECD emphasised the background influence of socio-economic background. That really comes over very strongly. And there's one little detail, not so little actually, it's a big detail. We know, and all the international evidence shows it, not just from the OECD but from academics as well, that early years education is one of the best investments you could make. And yet, uh, 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 parents from disadvantaged backgrounds who do not have tertiary education qualifications, who don't even have upper secondary education qualifications, don't tend to send their children to early years education. So there's a massive 10% difference between uh, parents who don't have those education outcomes not sending their kids to early years education. If I wanted to put my finger on how important it is to open up the opportunities to everyone, irrespective of their social backgrounds, for early years education. That comes over really starkly. The other thing that I thought actually the OECD delineated really brilliantly this year was the continuing uh, gender divide that there is. Uh, young women are doing incredibly well in education. In fact, they've overtaken the boys in general. But where they haven't overtaken the boys is where there are the classic gender divides. So young women tend to major on the arts, um, the humanities. Uh, boys are doing much, many more uh, tertiary education degrees in engineering and, and construction. And so there's a big, big difference there in terms of upper secondary and degree choices. And that is actually incredibly strongly reflected in, the, in economic terms in the labour market, where women are still uh, being paid far less than men. So in a sense, although girls are doing well uh, and a lot of those divides are disappearing in terms of opportunity, the opportunities are often divided by gender and that has a reflection, a bad reflection, on where women are doing in the labour market later on. I'm going to um, take you forward a little bit with that thinking and that question because in Old Blighty there has been a very clear focus on STEM for girls in particular, yeah. STEM subjects, and there has been a concomitant reduction in languages education by both girls and boys, and, and a massive reduction in, in the uptake of German and French and, in fact, languages across the board. Mandarin's the only one that is growing. Yeah. Um, would you like to comment on, on how that positioning works in terms of curriculum breadth? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, 
I despair about uh, modern foreign languages opportunities in, in various countries and I know what the situation is in the UK because that's where I come from. When policy decisions are taken by politicians who don't think, and the previous Secretary of State uh, did that when he introduced a, a UK version of the baccalaureate, he wiped out modern foreign languages at a stroke. Um, and that actually was like a blow upon a bruise, really. Uh, the, the fact of the matter was that there had been a major decline in modern foreign languages, um, principally because it's costly, uh, particu particularly in primary schools where it was mandated without, uh, without proper funding and uh, proper training and pro professional development for, for teachers and also new people coming into education. But the situation in, in modern foreign language is such that um, I think there is actually, Martin, a slight improvement in one or two of the other languages apart from Mandarin, which is actually the only, as you rightly say, showing improvement. There is a slight improvement, but we do have a situation where in the UK modern foreign languages is a declining subject in general with one or two bright shoots turning up. Um, now your other question having answered that very thoroughly, was? About STEM, about um, oh, yes. the focus STEM, on yeah, STEM no, for absolutely. girls. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I think you will find in a number of countries and not the UK that actually there's been uh, an improvement in terms of uh, some science disciplines take-ups. Take the classic one, of course, is that young women, girls, generally go for biology as opposed to physics or chemistry, for example. Um, but there has been a bit of an improvement there. I think where there is still the hard core of inaccessibility for young women and young men is in the area of applied use of STEM, and that is in the area of, of uh, engineering and construction. I should clarify that STEM is science, technology, and mathematics subjects. Yep. But as you rightly point out, it is in those areas, and engineering uh, sticks out particularly, as does computer science, where girls are, does, are yeah. applying in far lower numbers. Yep. So I'd, I'm going to go back to the socioeconomic question, because despite years of socioeconomic status being a predictor of achievement, we have not done as well as we would like in reducing inequity. And I think OECD have been constant in their focus on this issue for the past five to ten years at least. And yet, policy take-up doesn't appear to be tackling the problem. Have you got any ideas, given your knowledge of OECD and the areas around it, why that might be the case? Well, we skirt around the issues around um, um, social deprivation. Um, and... Um, the OECD is very keen on identifying positive actions that are taken to actually improve the educational opportunities for kids from social, social and economically deprived backgrounds. One of the classic ones that they really do go on about is how much effort some of the OECD countries have made in terms of refugee and migrant education, for example. A huge amount of resources have gone into that. Um, however, where I think n no one has, and, and that's not our fault, and it's not policymakers' fault from the teacher union's end, and it's not policymakers' fault, funnily enough, from 
um, the OECD end, where it, the problem is, is no one's, I think, ever recognised how important it is, is to coordinate um, services and support for families where there is, as it were, long-term intergenerational unemployment or very, very low funding. What you really, really have to do in that situation is that education can't do it all. You have to have a programme of support for the area, which involves, for example, not only um, uh, um, the kind of pedagogies which involve small group and one-to-one -one tuition, proper student-teacher ratios, proper social relations with individual parents, etc., etc., but also looking at the kind of opportunities that schools as sites and schools as communities can give to those parents and also getting rid of some of the structural things over which education has no control and that's to do with how much you actually get and how secure you are if you're unemployed. Now that's actually money that has to come from somewhere else and schools simply can't compensate for that. And I think those are wicked issues actually that uh, the OECD could do a in the wider penumbra of what other institutions ought to be cutting in to help support children's learning, the OECD should be sharper inside its policy documents saying that. Very thoughtful response. So education and the school can't do it all. Yeah. They have to do it in coordination with the other directorates in OECD and within the other government departments within a country. Okay, we're going to move on now to some of the information that you picked out around the future of work. The future of work seems to be a growing topic um, across many transnational organisations, not just OECD, ILO, UNESCO, everybody's talking about the future of work. There is quite a lot that's said about employment rates that are particularly low for women without um, upper secondary education about some of the gender issues within there and about some of the things about tertiary degrees that you've already picked on. Yeah. Um, would you like to make some comments about the future of work and how that's picked up and the stats that we've got? Well, the OECD's done a lot of work on, uh, on the future of skills training. It's also doing a lot of work, which I know you're involved, Martin, in terms of um, what kind of skills students need, need by 2030. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of work going on in that area. I always have a, a probably a um, heretical view about the inevitability of change, and that is that humanity has choices. <laughs> For example, um, uh, humanity took, uh, despite the rogue, occasional rogue country like Syria, took choices when it said we must ban chemical weapons. Um, now, the, if you take the logic line which says, um, uh, in a sense, invention of uh, or the constant need for research into areas that uh, you just follow the line and you carry on inventing uh, in a neutral way and you can't take a moral approach to it, you know, uh, is wrong, actually. And my view about the future of work is this, that actually... Uh, it seems to me, and, and I think in a sense the OECD needs to be saying it, we certainly need to be saying it, saying it and that is that technology is the servant of humanity, not the other way around. And 
I think those big overarching uh, questions should be, uh, um, as it were, described and focused by the international organisations, by ourselves, by OECD, as in how do you actually keep to that principle? Um, that's the first frustration in a sense. The second frustration is this, and that is that despite all the rhetoric about uh, social media, etc., etc., and uh, the new opportunities available for communication and the storing of knowledge, actually in terms of practical skills, it is still very hard to get a decent plasterer and a decent plumber. <laughs> and it seems to me that actually the binary divide between occupational skills and academic skills has been one of the most pernicious divides that exists. There's absolutely nothing wrong with an educated plumber. In fact, you would argue for an educated plumber because they at least have a strategic view about your plumbing system going up the spout. And, um, uh, and so uh, it, it does seem to me that actually we ought to be looking at a holistic approach to education, which is not about the various divides that take place after statutory education. It's about how anyone can learn those kind of skills in later life and actually the, the better the skills are, uh, better the range is, the better. I think the OECD 2030 project that you point to is absolutely in that territory. Yeah. Uh, actually the work that's going on there <coughs> is about the fact that students having empathy, understanding of others, yeah. the ability to cooperate, creative thinking skills and soft skills so-called yeah. are going to do better over a lifetime and that everybody should have access to these skills. Actually, that's a very, very important point you make there, uh, because in all my contact with the employers over the years I've been involved in uh, education, the, the general description is, is I mean, the, those who are hostile to schools, you know, are unreasonably so, particularly some employers will argue very strongly that, and especially those employers who don't want to, inve don't want to invest in training themselves, will say, well, it's just not good enough. I don't know what the education system is coming to. The fact they don't, they can't read or write whenever I... That's not what the, the real successful employers have ever said to me over the years. What they've always said is, what I want is a young person who is adaptable, willing, uses their own skills to actually take on new challenges, who has a very good attitude to learning, and that is exactly what schools do. That takes me smoothly on to my next question, <laughs> which is another subject of which um, we're really interested in, which is TVET, Technical Vocational yeah. Education and Training. Because we know that, as you point out, the binary of an academic track to university yeah. for some and everybody else falling off the edge of the cliff is yeah. no longer acceptable. Yeah. And that TVET has to be of good quality and has to provide learning for all. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the evidence that came up on, in that area? Yes, it's very interesting actually because it doesn't actually, the actual data that the OECD describe and what's happening in individual countries, um, some countries, not all countries actually, but significant countries uh, in terms of size, is not particularly encouraging, and that is that the vocational track, as separate from the academic track, is still seen as a second-class option, and uh, uh, and that actually the level of fallout from the vocational track is uh, quite high compared with the academic track, 
And so, in a sense, the old, old binary divide, which uh, you and I have just referred to, is actually one of second class and first class as well. Uh, I was involved in the UK in a highly exciting um, review of 14 to 19 education, which at the last minute the then government ditched because they were entering a, uh, a general election and they were worried about what the opposition would say, where uh, an actual 14 to 19 system which integrated academic and vocational education was constructed. I still think that was one of the great lost opportunities. I still think that's what countries ought to do. How do you acad uh, uh, integrate academic and vocational, vocational tracks where both have equal status? We'll come back to that over the years, I'm sure. As Dewey said, you can't divide kids <laughs> by uh, qualification as it consigns them to their class of origin. Um, I will touch on another area that you've already talked about which is early childhood because in our global status of teachers and the teaching profession report which is written by Nellie Stromquist and will be out on World Teachers Day it is very clear from our affiliates around the world that TVET and ECE actually have the worst conditions of employment and the worst um, whole package around them yeah. in terms of support and CPLD etc um, can you just focus on ECE for a second and, and reflect on what it tells us in the report about immigrant children who you've also already referred to and classroom ratios? Yes, uh, I mean, I, I think generally uh, it's one of those things where the headlines are kind of a bit misleading, really. I mean, actually, the take-up of early years education is, is quite encouraging. I seem to remember the... I mean, I haven't got the education at a glance in front of me, but we're talking about 80 to 90 percent of kids receiving some kind of early years education across the OECD countries. But when you dig down, what you'll find is uh, ratios are variable across countries and also the crucial area of working parents or parents who are living in really challenging circumstances who need under three education uh, education to enable, as it were, to uh, enable a pro usually a woman to go and get some work uh, and to start earning or at least to be able to support uh, the family in some way. Actually the take up there is, is much more variable and some countries are, are doing quite well on that and other countries doing very badly. So it's a must do better in that area. Yeah. If we turn now to financial resources invested in education, which was your opening gambit, there is a very clear breakdown in your summary about what's going on here. What does it tell us about educational financing if we take a look at such things as the overall amount being spent on education seems to be on the decline mm -hmm. and that that's having a concomitant result in that the education being offered cannot be of the same quality. Um, if we look within the stats, average annual expenditure per student in educational institutions of a share of GDP is 22% at primary, 25% at secondary, and 38% at tertiary. Yeah. What, what, what's behind these figures? This is the old primary-secondary divide, um, and that is a continuing argument that actually those in education for children broadly between you know, 2 to 11 in terms of age, 
uh, those institutions get less than uh, secondary schools. Now, I'm not in the business of putting up an invidious one phase or one sector versus the other, but it does show that actually when you're looking at those all-important early years, the funding is still not good enough in comparison with secondary, probably not good enough for the whole of education systems in many countries overall, but within that, primary and early years is not doing well compared with secondary. But I would say something else, because there are two interesting stats in there, actually. The first stat is, is that there has been more or less an increase in the spending per student of primary, secondary, and indeed tertiary uh, over the 2010-2015 period. But what it also says is that actually education's share of the gross domestic product, that is everything that a country produces, has actually declined. So you've got a contradiction. Uh, so the, the individual effect in many countries of spending on individual students is marginally up. But actually as a share, the it means that government priorities are down. Okay, so remembering that the OECD is largely the richest third of countries, that that in, in itself tells us a lot about what's going on in the rest of the world too. So we're going to move on to our favourite old chestnut, which is class size, <laughs> given that, as always, and um, Andreas Schleicher is reliable on this score, class size always comes up in one shape or another. Um, we do have some misinformation around it, given, as you've pointed out, that smaller class size has a very beneficial impact on the most disadvantaged students. Do you want to take us through the class size um, conundrum? Actually, there's a very, very, it's a very interesting read for those geeks like me um, in there about the relationship of class size to pupil-teacher ratios. And for the first time, they raised the question that actually we should be concentrating on pupil-teacher ratios, i.e. the number of teachers to students within the school. So you get more teachers in the school, uh, you're going to have far greater flexibility to deal with small groups, and if necessary when you need large groups, you need large groups such for instance physical education outside or whatever it is. But it, it's the ability of the school to deploy its teachers to maximum effect. Class size has always been a misnomer in that, but they do raise the issue of the PTRs, the pupil-teacher ratios. When it comes to class size, what I do detect in there um, not for the first time, but more stark starkly than before, is a recognition that it's children from socially deprived backgrounds who actually uh, need more favourable class, class size ratios. And so the old invidious point that has been made by the OECD in the past, that there's a trade-off between large class sizes and better pay, i.e. the only way you can pay for actually having improved teacher salaries is by increasing the classes is completely wrong. What you should be looking at is better pupil-teacher ratios and better funding for the school as an institution and then concentrating on actually attracting uh, the most enthusiastic and uh, most motivated people of the teaching profession through better pay. 
I think Schleicher makes that point in his latest book as well, yes, interestingly yeah. enough. <laughs> uh, we're just going to wrap up by asking the artist John Bangs a question about painting. So if you were to paint the EAG as a watercolour, what sort of picture would it be? Well, it's interesting, so I'm not sure you get the detail in the watercolour, but I had to say that what the EAG is, like one of those um, Dutch paintings of the, uh, of the late Renaissance by Bruegel or someone, loads and loads of detail and a lot going on. And so you'd be the big picture of the rather unlikely hills that don't exist in the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, various things, but when you look down onto the onto the pond, the ice, there's all sorts of funny things going on. So I actually <laughs> think that's the relationship. I think for our Belgian listeners as well, Bruegel <laughs> was actually a Bruxellois. So Is he well, really? well, he was painting well, round and about, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it, he was he's he's buried in Belgium. So that's a really interesting and and thoughtful look at the EAG. Make sure you read the summary and read the book as well. Thank you. To get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Ed Voices on your favourite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. And as always, tell a friend, spread the word, and please give us a review on iTunes. Bye for now.